At Van City Church, we believe that the controversial first century figure known as Jesus of Nazareth was and is a teacher. In fact, um, when you read the biographies of Jesus' life, when people approached Jesus, they most often addressed him as rabbi, which is a word that means teacher. But we also believe that Jesus was more than just a teacher. We believe that he was and is the long-awaited king of Israel that's spoken of in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we often call the Old Testament. We believe at Van City that he is the Lord, meaning Jesus is God with and among us, and he is the clearest picture of what God has always been like and will always be like. And because of all this, we uh, understandably take the following Jesus quite seriously. We want so badly for the way of Jesus to be much more than the way we answer a question about belief in God or in heaven or in hell. We want to pursue mastery of Jesus' teachings and of his lifestyle. We believe that Jesus intended for his disciples to do that, and that's what we are. Those of us who follow Jesus are his disciples. Or another word of, way of understanding that term is apprentices. He is our teacher. We are his apprentices. So consequently, we want to frame our church around much more than singing songs and listening to a sermon once a week. We are working to organize our lives around a set of practices, what are often called spiritual disciplines or principles of emotional health that are all taken from the teachings and the life of Jesus of Nazareth, our King. The spiritual disciplines enable us to learn the lifestyle of Jesus and to actually put his methods into practice functionally. And emotional health enables us to become spiritually mature, just as Jesus, our teacher, was emotionally healthy and spiritually mature. So we learn about them here on a Sunday, then we go out into groups, Cameron was talking about a minute ago, called Van City Communities throughout the weeks, scattered across the city, and we give it a shot together. Currently, we're on week three of an ongoing series and set of practices based on the broad and profound idea of prayer. So if you've been away, please go back and catch up on the podcast if you're so inclined. So in order to learn how to pray, we are going to go, of course, to Jesus. So let's read Luke chapter 11, beginning with the very first verse. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Jerk, jerk father. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. 
So thus far in our conversation around prayer, we've talked quite a bit about the fundamental presuppositions Jesus intends for us to carry into our time of prayer. Things like God is our good Father. He wants good things for us. He is as close as the air on our skin and so on. And though we've mentioned the way that in Jesus' template for prayer, what we've just read, he doesn't get to the bit where we ask for things until about the halfway point. He does teach his disciples to ask for things when they pray. It's built into the template. And yet, in Jesus' provided template, the request portion is pretty stark uh, and, and more than a little broad. It's just daily bread or basic provision, basically. So what do we ask for when we pray based on this template? Do you ask for things that have a lot to do with you personally? Things like your health and your job and your family. Is that okay? Is that selfish or is that simple? Do you ask for generic things, broad things like an end to war and uh, food for the poor? Does that make sense? Can those prayers actually be answered? And why ask for anything at all, really? Doesn't Jesus say elsewhere that our Father is well aware of our needs prior to our asking Him? And that's beautiful, sure, but what are we doing giving God old information? What's the point? What does it accomplish? So to answer those questions, do me a favor, bookmark Luke 11 and turn with me backward all the way to Genesis chapter 2. I want to take a, a really quick tour through a few Old Testament passages that Jesus himself would have studied all his life. He even committed them to memory, we think, and they shaped his understanding of prayer. Now, most of us know the story we're about to get into well enough. A, a long time ago, God crafts a unique place and he installs in it human beings who are intended to partner with God in ruling over God's good world. And then he tells them this, Genesis chapter 2, let's read verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, this is obviously part of a much bigger and broader story, but notice that language from God himself to his image bearer, you are free. This story acts as an archetype in describing the great predicament of the entire world, the problem of evil, the state of things as they are. We've been granted by God a level of freedom, and when freedom is built into creation, evil is an inevitability. Of course, you know the story, human beings freely choose to rebel against God, almost first things first, and rather than partner with Him, they go their own way. So turn over to chapter 3, Genesis 3, and let's read verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So evil is an inevitability built into freedom. In this case, it's somewhat immediate. Uh, does every human always choose only evil all the time? Of course not. But every human, according to the story of the scriptures, does choose evil in ways big and small or frequent or infrequent. And as the human population spreads out over the planet, evil spreads with it, and that's a problem. So the rest of this entire story of the scriptures is about what God is going to do about that problem. And yet, interestingly, God, frustrated though he becomes, does not retract the collaborative freedom he intends to share with humanity. Let's look at just a couple of instances before we move on. Turn to the very next book, Exodus chapter 32. Genesis and then Exodus 
chapter 32. In this story, which is already in progress, where we're going to read, a gentleman called Moses is up on a mountain talking with God. And meanwhile, the very people with whom God has specially selected to collaborate in rescuing the world from evil get up to all sorts of shenanigans. We're about to read about it. So let's read Exodus chapter 32, beginning with verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us, brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So the people took off their earrings, brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, the calf. So the next day the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The text says, whatever that means. But then the Lord said to Moses, Go down. Moses, remember, is up on the mountain. He's not with everyone as this is going down. Go down because your people, Israel, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent. Do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. That's weird. Uh, let's make sure that we understand this. God is upset. He makes an express, unambiguous statement about his intentions, the impending destruction of Israel. It's a scary, weird story. And Moses steps aside and says, absolutely, God is in control. Now, that was me being facetious. He doesn't say that. Uh, that isn't what happens at all. And Moses hears God declare his intentions, and he contends with God. He says, no. Don't do that, God. He calls God's attention to God's character and reminds him of God's promises. And then, why, you know, Moses in front of God, why would you do that? What would the Egyptians say about you? Which is such a weird thing to leverage with God. Have you forgotten your promises to us and to Abraham and to me? And what does God say? I shall smite thee for thine insolence. You know, and then Mo Moses spontaneously combusts into a ball of sparks or something like that. No, obviously not. Uh, once again, my facetiousness. It actually, the text actually says the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And that word relent shows up twice in the story. It's in verse 12, Moses prays that God will relent. And then in verse 14, that's exactly what God does. In Hebrew, the word is naham, and it's the exact same word that elsewhere your Bibles translate as repent. 
Um, some translations even re render that statement, the Lord changed his mind and did not bring the disaster on his people. God nahamed, God relented or repented. God changed his mind. And terrified of these words, oh, what great lengths some will go to in order to make them say something else. God didn't actually change his mind, they say. So, was the author lying or was God lying? Because they both seem to understand that God is relationally dynamic. He responds to the prayers of human beings. He relents even. And historically, some theological traditions, afraid of the implications or, or else uncomfortable with them, have aggressively recoiled at this suggestion, contending that an understanding of a response of God that changes his minds, or however you want to word it, is a low view of God. For some, God must be all-controlling, above response or influence or interaction. And it isn't because the traditions themselves are evil. We, we do indeed see in the Bible a God who is big and strong, a God of unlimited power. But the scriptures also paint this beautiful portrait of a God who responds to prayer. So let's look at one more quick example before we move on. Turn to the right in your Bibles to a book called Second Kings. Consult the table of contents if you like. There's no shame in that whatsoever. Second Kings chapter 20. This is one of my favorite stories in the entire Old Testament about a fellow called Hezekiah. And while you turn, I will drink this delicious coffee. Let's see, it's already starting to get funny. Then the key is to keep pushing it until it's no longer funny anymore. You'll see. Hang around. Hang around. This is my incentive to continue coming to church, Katie. What do you think? Bad. Bad? Okay. You're probably right. You're probably right. I trust you. Second Kings chapter 20. Let's read beginning with the very first verse. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. Very sick. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, Listen, this is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, Go back and tell Hezekiah the ruler of my people, This is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Now pay close attention to what happens in this story. Hezekiah is told, no uncertain terms. It's not even a threat at this point. You are going to die. You will not recover. And what's more, these are God's words. And in the story, immediately it seems, Hezekiah rolls over in bed, he prays, and he weeps. And how does God respond? By sending the prophet back to Hezekiah to say, God is in control. No, God hears his prayers, and he sees his tears, and he reverses his verdict. I will heal you. And I really wish we had time to continue with more stories like this one because they aren't alone. In fact, Scripture is filled with ones just like them. God hears prayers and He responds, often reversing His own decrees, changing His mind, changing reality itself, all at the request of or in response to His people and their prayers, sometimes one person and one prayer. 
It seems that according to the scriptures, the low view of God is the one that imagines him forever frozen in his own unilateral control. But God isn't. People pray and things change, often radically. Greg Boyd puts it like this. The central problem with this conception of sovereignty is that there's nothing intrinsically praiseworthy about sheer power. Praise has to do with character. What is praiseworthy about God's sovereignty is not that he exercises a power he obviously has, but that out of his character, he does not exercise all the power he could. Now listen, many of you already believe that or something like that theologically. It stands to reason. Or perhaps at least you may not believe exactly that, but you understand that intellectually. But I wonder how many of us actually pray this way. Uh, I read this quote from Dallas Willard a few weeks ago, but it's so dang good that I'm going to read it to you guys again. May it be seared into your consciousness. God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he's only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course, God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. A few years ago, I was praying with a friend. And uh, I invited this friend upon request to pray for someone uh, who had just been diagnosed with cancer. And so this friend of mine began to pray, and he prayed for comfort and for peace and provision and, of course, for healing. But, my friend added as he prayed, but if it's not your will to heal this man, then comfort his family when he passes. And we finished praying, and I asked my friend, we had the relational equity for me to talk to him this way, I said, why did, why did you say that? Why would you assume that God does not want to stop cancer, to rescue the father of these kids, to keep his wife from becoming widowed? And even if you do submit to this assumption, why would you concede to this verdict in prayer? Why would you not pray as Moses prayed or as Hezekiah prayed? And we'll talk in depth about unanswered prayer next week. Why, why is it that regardless of our theological presuppositions, prayers often go unanswered? That's next week. But what I want us to understand tonight is that, yes, there are times in which one prays, your will be done, where we give ourselves over to the possibility that God might be up to something that diverges from our own desire in some way, absolutely upon the example of Jesus. We do that. But remember, when Jesus set that example... He only did so after praying that God might change his mind about the most important event in human history first. For the most part, I think we get that. I think for the most part, the vast majority of us at least understand the idea of praying, your will be done. We kind of do that by default, like this friend that I'm talking about did. But what we don't seem to get as often is that there are other times in which we are invited to contend with God or contend with circumstances, the way that things are, or they seem to be. And get this, there are times when it works. Writer Sky Jathani argues this, We are not merely passive set pieces in a prearranged cosmic drama, but we are active participants with God in the writing, directing, design, and action that unfolds. Prayer, therefore, is much more than asking God for this or that outcome. It is drawing into communion with Him and they're taking up our privileged role as his people. In prayer, 
we are invited to join him in directing the course of his world. The premise revealed throughout the Old Testament and carried on into the New is actually quite simple. God's original and ongoing intent was to collaborate with his image bearers, his image bearers, people, in ruling and reigning over the world. Because we are free, we are able to choose God or reject him, and consequently things have gone very wrong. Prayer, then, is the relational collaborative means by which we partner with God in restoring his world to goodness. And remember, this is the understanding that permeated Jesus' upbringing. By his late teens, we actually believe that Jesus would have memorized the entire Old Testament. That's Genesis to Malachi, set to memory. So the stories about Abraham, Moses, Hezekiah, and more would have absolutely shaped and formed Jesus' idea and understanding of prayer. Now with this in mind, Turn back to Luke 11, and let's take one last look at that text before we end. You guys still with me? Yes? Oh, awesome. Thank you. As I enjoy this cold brew <laughs> Mike's already shaking his head. He's so disgusted. Luke 11. Let's read it again. Verse 1. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Now notice the way that the premises we've just explored are built into Jesus' prayer template as presuppositions, meaning Jesus doesn't argue for one particular view of the world and theological understanding of evil and freedom and all that. He simply presupposes it when he teaches his disciples to pray. For example, Jesus assumes that praying for God's original intent to be realized on earth is a worthwhile thing to do, which is why he says, you should pray this, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And notice... Jesus assumes that given our need to ask, it must be the case that God's kingdom is not fully realized on earth. Not yet anyway, not all the way. More on that again next week. And yet Jesus also assumes that by praying, we can ask God to change the state of things as they are. Entirely consistent, of course, with the Bible Jesus grew up reading. And I realize that I can't embed this into all, our, all of our hearts and our minds in a, you know, a half-hour talk or whatever. But what I want so badly for us to just see tonight in this text is this. Jesus believed, along with the whole of the Scriptures, that prayer is one of, if not the primary way, that we change things. And I suspect every single one of you experiences, in various degrees, the great human sense that all is not right in the world. Many of us would rather complain on the internet or shift blame or hope to, uh, you know, government or politicians. The world is either bad because of them or it can be made better by them or without them. And why not? You know, ours is a world where the faces of politicians and celebrities and social media personalities are lazily accessible. God's voice is better, and like most better things, it requires more from our hearts and our minds to actually get at. So when we say we pray, but how often do we sincerely believe we will reverse a verdict given by life or by circumstances or doctors or by God? 
I'm sure you've, you've all seen or heard the, you know, the <laughs> inoffensive variation on prayer that happens in civil conversation. And, and don't, please forgive me if I'm stepping on toes or something, but people will often say something like, I'm sending good thoughts, uh, which is hilarious to me because the premise, I think, is maybe I'm, you know, being cynical, but I'm almost definitely being cynical. The premise is that prayer is so stupid. You know, the idea of talking to an invisible benevolent being and asking for change. I get it's very far-fetched to some people, but how the heck does somebody send good thoughts? Where do they go? What do, what do they do when you send them out? Can you send bad thoughts? What about confusing thoughts, you know? Can you, like, mess up somebody? It's like someone decided, man, prayer is so dumb. Look at these dummies. Now, if you'll excuse me, <laughs> I'm trying to transport positive, positive thoughts from my brain through the air, I guess, or radio waves or something, and to another person's mind. Thank you. Y'all don't think that's funny? I thought it was hilarious. But for the disciple of Jesus, prayer, far-fetched though it may seem to many, even to disciples of Jesus at times, is not only rational, it is necessary. It is the means by which we get change done. Not the only means, but the primary and arguably one of the most important. So for Jesus, prayer is our go-to weapon in setting things to rights. Theologian Karl Barth said this, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. I love that. Karl Barth, very punk rock. I believe that Jesus agrees with Barth here, but Jesus doesn't stop there. If you're still in Luke 11, let's read through this one more time. Verse 5, then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine's on a journey. He's come to me. I have no food to offer him. Suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked. My children are in bed. I can't give up and give you anything. Can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of your friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Remember, Jesus has been shaped by reading the stories of, of Abraham, of Moses, of Hezekiah, people contending with a verdict from God or from life or from circumstances. And I love the way that Jesus elaborates that he overmakes his point, so to speak. It seems as though this matters quite a bit. Or maybe it's because Jesus suspects his audience's inability to fully grasp this incredible reality. One reason that our prayers go unanswered or that change um, is yet unrealized is that we don't ask. Honestly, how often do we confront minor or major complications in life and not broach the topic with God for even a moment? As one New Testament author puts it, you have not because you ask not. For Jesus, unanswered prayer is complicated, absolutely, but unasked prayer is an even bigger problem. And why would we not ask? Because we assume everything will simply go the way it's going to go either way or, or we live this way functionally as though things are going to happen the way that they're going to happen regardless of what we do or do not pray. Or maybe it's because we simply forget God in the tedium of life or, or perhaps in the crisis of life or we're distracted or we go to other avenues of provision before God. In any event, we often don't ask. And it's really that simple. Or maybe we do ask, but we do so without audacity. I, I mean, good grief. Remember that story about Moses. Like, what would the Egyptians say about you? Don't do this. Remember who you're supposed to be. You made a promise to us, God. Compare that to the way that my friend prayed for this gentleman with cancer. 
You know, Moses seems to be saying, no, God, you're saying you're going to do this? No, don't do this. Do something about this. Be who you say that you are. And we often pray very different. If you can, try, but if it's not your will, okay, I guess, you know. And I bet nearly every one of us, I realize I'm, I'm being cynical, but I, re I bet nearly every one of us are at least a tad familiar with that second prayer. If you can do something, try. If it's not your will, okay. But how many of us know what it's like to pray that first prayer? No, do not do this. Do something about this. Why do we assume that God doesn't care about our reactions to life and circumstances or tragedy or good or evil? Why do we assume God doesn't care about what we think, our input? He certainly seemed to care a great deal about Moses. He relented. He repented all because Moses asked. He certainly seemed to care a great deal about Hezekiah. I mean, the prayer that we get rendered in the text is just a couple of lines long, and God reverses such a specific verdict just because he asked. I think that he cares about what you think and what you feel in much the same way. Or maybe some of us, we do ask, and we do ask boldly, but then we sort of move on nearly immediately. Yes, it is absolutely tiring, as many of you have gone through something arduous over a long period of time. It is very tiring to pray for the same thing day after day after day. But in many cases, for a lot of us, we sort of, we go at it for about five minutes before we call it good, or one day, and then that's it. I was with this incredible friend of mine one evening somewhere in Texas or something, I can't remember, and he asked to pray for this gentleman in a wheelchair. This friend of mine, he sees people with visible physical ailments and he has to pray for them and zany stuff happens. He's actually coming uh, to Van City in a few weeks to talk about this very thing. So he asked to pray for this gentleman in a wheelchair. I'm with him, so now I'm roped into it. And then hours later, we're still praying for this guy. And it was incredible. He got up out of the wheelchair and he walked for a bit, but it was without the results that this, this friend of mine wanted or, or thought that we were going to see in this instance. And it, it sort of ended that way. It was amazing, but like it wasn't what we thought we were getting ourselves into. And, and because of that, it was uh, easy to become a bit discouraged and lose perspective. But we went at it for hours. And then months later, I was with that same friend, again, praying at length for this gentleman who in this case was blind, was legally blind. And again and again, without the results that he wanted, in this case, no, no breakthrough whatsoever. And I was just thinking of that last time in Texas, like, man, what's spend so many hours. How long are we going to do this? Can't we just say, we'll keep praying for you when we leave here? You know, like the thing, we'll keep it up. You do your thing, we'll do our thing. But um, this, this friend of mine was undeterred, and then hours into it with no incident, no results whatsoever, all of a sudden this gentleman sees something. Um, he sees uh, my friend's fingers coming into his line of vision for the first time, and I was, all of a sudden I was paying attention at that point. <laughs> uh, but I think that we, we often pray like someone who sort of hangs up before the person they're calling can answer because they weren't actually interested in talking in the first place, but hey, they called, and now you can see that miscalled, and they say, yeah, I called you at 2 o'clock. Remember, it was there. God's timing or what we perceive as a sense of delay or the chaos that happens in life and in the spiritual realm, which we'll talk about again next week, is, it's not always a no. There are all sorts of variables that go into whether or not a prayer is answered and when it's answered and why and we'll see that it's not always an issue of God's immediate I said yes or I said no and you get the results right away and that's that frankly I'm shocked that so many of us myself absolutely included so many of us read the scriptures 
story after story after story of God open to influence and to suggestion, who changes his mind and relents and repents. He alters plans. He reverses his own decrees when people pray. And then we somehow walk away from all that, assuming or behaving as though God is uninterested in our suggestions or our feedback or our requests or our prayers or the things that we want or the way that we feel. The point is, Jesus teaches his disciples to keep asking and asking and asking. The entire premise is of, uh, the premise of what we call intercessory prayer, which is our practice for the coming week, is built on this foundation to ask and to ask again. And interestingly, I learned this week that word intercession shows up only twice in the entire New Testament. Here's the primary example from which the term gets most of its uh, use. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. In Greek, the word translated here as intercession is intuxis. It more literally just means to petition a king, to ask and to continue to ask. And though the precise word only cameos twice in the New Testament, this concept is well represented all throughout the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus. Subversive theologian Walter Wink puts it like this, intercession is spiritual defiance of what is in the name of what God has promised intercessors visualize an alternative future to the one uh, apparently fated by the momentum of current forces prayer infuses the air of a time yet to be into the suffocating atmosphere of the present history belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being even a small number of people firmly committed to the new inevitability on which they have fixed their imaginations can decisively affect the shape the future takes. These shapers are the, of the future are the intercessors. All that to say, all throughout the story of the scriptures and all throughout the history of the church, people ask God for things with boldness, with audacity, with resolve, they continue to ask, and then things happen. And we're going to give this a shot in the coming week. When your community gathers, you'll go to practicingtheway.org prayer, and you'll take a look at the guided curriculum together. If you're new or you're not yet in a community, you can absolutely join us anyway. Grab a friend or two or your spouse or, or a buddy and give it a shot. The practice is going to be split into two exercises. One of them is a bit more active and one of them is going to seem a bit passive. For the first, you'll need a, a prayer card. Did you guys get one of these things when you came in tonight? Yes? If you didn't, uh, they're on the, they'll be on the info table, which is right out here to my left. And um, Yeah, my left. I'm not going to confuse everyone any more than that. It's right out here behind it. You'll see them. They're on the table. Um, so make sure that you have one. Of course, if you prefer your own, you can make it or you can write in your notebook. Uh, here at the top, you'll write uh, someone's name or a certain subject over which you're praying. You might have several, one for your spouse and one for your kids or one for your community or a friend or whatever it might be, someone at your work, your work in general. The list can go on and on as you grow in the discipline. But you can start really simple and really small and just take one if you like. Beneath the, um, your, the subject name and subject line, you write that in. And then in these bullet points beneath them, you'll write your prayers for that person or for that thing. And I would really encourage you guys, be very, very specific. I often suspect, I could be wrong, but I often suspect 
that generic prayers can tend toward generic answers and outcomes or, or dispositions in the way that we pray, or specific prayers, on the other hand, can yield specific sort of dialogue with God or specific um, answers and interactions. So if you're not sure what to write, you're like, well, I don't know exactly what to pray over this person, that's fine. Just try something. You can use language from the scriptures if you like. Look up something that Jesus says when he prays. Write that in there. Give that a shot. Or you can use your own ordinary way of talking. It's absolutely fine. Just write something down and actually pray it. Give it a shot and date it. Write the date when you began to pray for those things. And then when you pray... Every time you pray, if possible, or in the time that you've set aside in the morning or whenever works for you, um, reach for this card and pray for the things on it, even if only for a minute or two, um, but take the card and work your way down the list. Now, the second exercise in the practices is the passive one, and the idea is that when we pray, we don't want to just say, okay, I've got these things in mind, and I'm going to go for them, this is what I want, um, even though Jesus does teach us that we can and should ask for God for things. We want to also... Ask God's Spirit to direct our time of intercession as well. Meaning we ask God, what do you think I should pray for? And then we pray for that thing. So this idea that's going to be in the curriculum, it falls under the category of a larger discipline called imaginative prayer, which is a, one of my absolute favorites. We're going to get into that in just a few weeks. For now, all you need to do or all you need to know is that you're going to imagine yourself in a room with Jesus. And it should be someplace that you can actually represent well in your mind's eye, so to speak. And then you'll simply ask Jesus to bring into that room in your mind a specific person of his choosing by his spirit. And when and if someone comes to mind, you ask God's spirit how to pray for them. Oh, it's this person. What, what should I pray? And then you wait on that answer and then you do it. That's it. It's really that simple. And I know that for some of you guys, this might sound like a stretch. Maybe for some of you, it's like, oh, I already do that. That's no big deal. Whatever the case, I don't want you to be intimidated or discouraged by any of this. Maybe you find it easy and life-giving even if you've never done it. Maybe you find it difficult and trying, at least in the beginning. That's totally fine. All that we ask is that you give it a shot, that you try. I think every one of us, at the very least, can just give it a try. And I think you might be surprised if you do. To end tonight, perhaps fittingly, let me say something very brief about the way that we often conclude our time of praying. For most, if not all of us, it usually ends, or at least sometimes ends, with something like, in Jesus' name, amen. Of course, that's not random or baseless. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It's derived from Jesus' teaching to pray in his name, so to speak. But what does that mean, really? It certainly isn't some sort of special incantation that validates the prayer. If you forget that tag, then the prayer is moot. Um, the way, it's not like, you know, the way that, uh, what is it, Wingardium Leviosa only works with the swish and the flick or whatever it is. You have to get both, y'all don't care about that reference either? Harry, dang, they have some, someone's nerdy. Um, I've, a solidarity in, in the nerd, yeah, you've got it. Um, meaning that in Jesus' name, or what I'm getting at is that in Jesus' name is more of a acknowledgement of our disposition while praying. It's a, it's a way of praying, not necessarily a way of tagging a prayer, meaning we remember that we have been given the same access to the Father that Jesus himself enjoyed because of Jesus, and therefore we pray in his name or in keeping with his character and his truth. God is the great king of the entire cosmos, 
And rather than beating on some inaccessible CEO's office door or, you know, begging on the corner of some wealthy patriarch's home, we get to step before God as royal sons and daughters, just as Jesus himself did. In Jesus' name, we are deeply loved and heard, even prioritized by the king of the entire universe himself. I'm uh, currently in the process of, of, of pitching this, my newest novel to literary agents, but I, I have this friend who works uh, for a big publisher, so I reached out to him and I asked, hey, can you give my manuscript to so-and-so and so-and-so? Because I'm just some stranger. Nobody cares about me or this book that I've written, but he works with them, you know? He has their ear. They listen to him. They make time for him. They value his input, so I want him to go for me. We, as disciples of Jesus, have an in with God. We work with him, so to speak. He values our input. We have his ear. He listens to us. He makes time for us. He cares about what we say and what we want. And when we understand that, and when we give up our either conscious or subconscious image of God as our ATM machine or as Santa Claus or as distant or as busy or as unhearing, then I think we may begin to talk to God and ask for things the way a beloved child asks a loving parent, assuming that they want so badly to provide. This morning I made the mistake of, uh, my son was telling me that he's three, he, wants, he wanted to watch because he was going outside in the yard to find dinosaurs out there. They're out there apparently. So after I had like taped together, a, you know, a two, I cut a cardboard tube in half and taped it together for his binoculars, he's like, I need a watch as well. I don't know why the watch has anything to do with finding dinosaurs at all. I said, really? You need a watch? Yeah, I really need the watch. So I was like, okay. I drew a watch on a sheet of paper, and I cut it out, and I taped it on his wrist. And that was it. He's like, perfect. I got it. And then I watched him walk around in the yard talking in the watch and checking it and looking at it and saying, oh, it's a compsognathus. I see it out there. And, uh, and then that, that was the mistake. So he came back and said, I think I want to find a snake in the yard. I'm like, that would, that would be cool. He's like, so let's make one on the paper. Cut out the snake. So I made a snake on paper and cut that out, and now there's a snake in the yard. Then he saw a moth, but the moth would have been better if it was bigger. So he came back in and said, like, can we draw a moth and cut the moth out of paper? But it's like, no, the moth's on the wall, so now the moth had to be taped to the wall. It was really, it was really funny. It was quite an episode going on out there. And, uh, and I thought it was great. I loved every second of it, and I was so happy to stop what I was doing and cut the, you know, draw poorly a moth on paper and then cut it out and tape it to the wall. And my son never for an instant, even when I was like, well, hold on, let me do this first, or your sister's making this weird sound now and she's upset about something, he never seemed to be deterred by it even for a second. He assumed that really what I wanted to do was to make the moth. After all, you know, he wants the moth. Surely I understand he wants the moth. I'm going to make the moth, right? And I think that we get to come before God with that same amount of audacity and that same expectation that regardless of the timing of the paper cutout or regardless of what it looks like or all these different variables that go into it, our assumption is that God is our good Father. We have His ear. He wants to do good things for us. We assume that much when we go into His presence, and we get to ask as royal sons and daughters our dad for very, very good things. So this week, my prayer for you and I is that we would learn what it actually means to truly pray in Jesus' name, so to speak. So with that in mind, would you guys mind, go ahead, clear off your lap or uh, close your eyes if that helps stave off the distraction, and we're going to ask God's Spirit to come and to speak. 